1 Kings 22. We're going to read uh, the first 40 verses of this chapter, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating chapter, and uh, I'm looking forward to studying it with you. So 1 Kings 22. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hands of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as are, are your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. And then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. And then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your words be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. The king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out 
and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying prophet or lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It's surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. And therefore Ahab said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, Every man to his city and every man to his country. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory houses that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers. And Azahiah, his son, reigned in his place. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we come to your word again with expectation, knowing that you are a God who still speaks to us in your word and by your spirit. And so we pray that from uh, your word now, we would behold wondrous things as we consider the power of the word which you have spoken. And we pray that you would give us grace, the grace of humility, to hear it, to sit under it, and to submit to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. Stretching all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when the serpent slithered up to Eve to tempt her, our history has been one of warfare between man and God's word. In every time, in every place, there's a fundamental conflict between man in his spiritually dead state and God as he makes himself known in his word. This warfare takes place even today. 
This war between man and God as he has made himself known in his word consists of countless battles. There are clashes that are taking place throughout our city right now. This warfare is being waged even here in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We value our freedom. We don't like to be told what to do. We find ourselves deeply resistant to submitting ourselves to anyone else's authority. And so we hear protests. Who are you to tell me what to do? Or the declaration, my body, my choice. That's why year after year, at least recently, Frank Sinatra's anthem, I Did It My Way, remains the number one song sung at funerals in the United Kingdom, ahead of traditional hymns like Amazing Grace. We're resistant to coming under authority. And so, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to God's Word, which makes its authoritative claims uh, upon all human beings in all areas of life, we find ourselves, all of us, naturally resistant. Romans 8, 7 instructs us why. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Men and women are by nature truth suppressors and truth resistors. Though God has plainly made himself known, man refuses his testimony because man is at war with God. Well, our passage tonight is a most vivid illustration of this conflict between man and God's word. Now, while our passage speaks of things that happened almost 3,000 years ago, halfway across the world, little in this warfare between man and God's word has changed. And there's not a person here that is outside this conflict. And therefore, we should pay close attention to this passage as it warns God's enemies that God, by his word, will destroy all who remain his enemies by their refusal to submit themselves to his word in humble repentance. And what's more, for those of us who by his grace have been humbled beneath his word, we should draw comfort from this same truth, that God in his mighty word, that he will triumph over his enemies and yours. And he is able to keep his promises of salvation. So our approach this evening will be to cover two realities concerning God's word. First, we'll see God's word rejected. Man is prone to twist and resist and malign what God has spoken. And second, we'll see God's word is sovereign. Its power is complete, all-encompassing. His word, the articulation of his will and his purpose, uh, these things will absolutely come to pass. And though his word is rejected by some, God's word will ultimately triumph. Now, Ahab was what you would call a lame duck king. We've noted previously in our studies uh, that the book of Kings is in search for the promised king who would come and rescue God's people. And it's very clear that wicked Ahab is not that king. Twice already, God has spoken a word of judgment on Ahab. And so we're waiting for the proverbial axe to fall. In 1 Kings 20, verse 42, a nameless prophet comes to Ahab because Ahab had disobeyed the voice of God and entered into an alliance with the Syrian king. And he says, therefore your life, Ahab, shall be for his life and your people 
for his people. And then in 1 Kings 21, after Ahab robs uh, Naboth and murders him, Elijah says to Ahab, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Words that will come back in our own passage this evening. But God, however, in a display of his merciful character, he responds to Ahab's remorse by withholding the full brunt of his judgment in Ahab's lifetime. And yet what's clear is that God's word still stands, and Ahab's time is running out. And for three years, Israel and Syria had been at peace. But now Ahab sees an opportunity to reclaim some land that they had lost, and so he seeks the, the, the help of the righteous king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat agrees, but then he tells Ahab, we should consult the Lord first. And that's what sets up our story tonight. Ahab calls, at Jehoshaphat's request, 400 prophets together. And while we've seen before that Ahab has uh, kept prophets of other gods on the royal payroll, these men, it appears, looks like they at least claim to be speaking for the Lord. They're not overtly pagan prophets, but they're not true prophets of the Lord either. And when asked by Ahab what would be the outcome if they went to Ramoth Gilead, these religious spokesmen quickly give Ahab the answer that he's looking for. Victory is yours, Ahab. Go up. But it doesn't sit right with Jehoshaphat, who's acquainted with true religion. And so he asks for a second opinion. He says, is there a prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Oh, yes, Ahab huffs. There is one, Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. I hate him. He's almost as bad as Elijah. He's not supportive in the least. But if you insist on hearing him, you'll find out. And while Micaiah is being fetched, the kings hold court and hear more from Ahab's prophets. Now, one of them, Zedekiah, made a particular impression with the iron horns that he used as props, saying, Thus says the Lord, with these horns you shall gore or or push the Syrians until they are destroyed. Now, though our passage will go on to make clear that Zedekiah was absolutely wrong, he wasn't making this stuff up entirely. It seems likely that Ahab was prophesying or, or preaching from Deuteronomy 33, verse 17. There God says of some of the northern tribes of Israel that with horns like that of a wild ox, they would gore, same word, the nations, all of them, to the ends of the earth. See, Zedekiah says, it's right here in your Bible, Ahab. Victory is ours. But while Zedekiah could perhaps point to a chapter and a verse in the Bible, he didn't really care if that verse was properly applied to this situation. He didn't flinch to twist scripture out of its context if he could tell the king what the king wanted to hear. Well, then we see another indicator of how Ahab's court resists God's word. The prophet Micaiah is brought by a messenger to the royal court, and on the way, Ahab's messenger, he wants to to prep Micaiah, get him ready. Look, Micaiah, he says, You should know that all the other 400 prophets, very reasonable fellows, they've unanimously announced that Ahab would be victorious. And as you can guess, this has put the king in a very good mood, and we like that around here. So be a team player, speak favorably about this campaign. Now what a a verse for our times this is. 
It's a difficult and lonely place to be in Micaiah's shoes. There's no explicit threat at this point. There's no persecution at this point, but there's this subtle pressure. Are you sure you want to be the difficult, disagreeable one? Well, the messenger's request, however, shows that he, like the rest of Ahab's court, completely misunderstand the nature of true religion. See, Micah can't simply manufacture or massage a message that will endear him to the king. That's not how biblical religion works. It's not how God's spokesmen, the prophets, work. To Ahab, to Zedekiah, to this messenger, God's word, whether it was recorded in the scriptures or whether it came from a prophet, it wasn't something living and active and authoritative, something that that you had to come under. It was a tool that they stood over, useful to them for inspiring and affirming and motivating. So Ahab can grumble when Micaiah doesn't say anything uh, that he likes or that he wants him to. Zedekiah can twist the scriptures to support this new campaign. The messenger can prod Micaiah to simply say something nice for a change. In this way, Ahab and his court, they were simply being postmodern before it was cool. Their approach was that you could simply select out of religion what works for you or what's going to meet your needs. Their view of God's word reminds me of a toy I won at school as a boy. It was one of those magic eight balls. Maybe uh, you remember those. Uh, you would ask a question and you would shake the plastic oracle uh, and then an answer would appear. So you'd shake it, does Susie like me? Uh, my sources say no. Okay, I'm going to shake it again. Right? The beauty of the eight ball is that you would always just shake it again until it gave you the answer that you wanted. How many of us treat God's word in that way? We control it shaking it until it appears to produce to us the message that we want. We're masters over the word. We're not mastered by the word. We use the word as if it were an instrument in our hands to accomplish our purposes, not an instrument in God's hands to accomplish his. We pick out a verse uh, or we have our, our little devotional reflection for the day and we go in search for something that will meet our need for love and peace or some other emotional support. We base our evaluation of the sermon on whether we liked what the preacher said or not, not whether or not it was true. Well, this is the assumption that underlies the messenger's not-so-subtle request of Micaiah. And this is an example of our warfare. We will not submit ourselves beneath the word, but we seek to stand above it and make it repeat back to us what we think we need it to say. Well, our account shows us God's word being rejected, twisted, resisted, maligned by wicked men. And in their attitudes toward the word, we see something of our own battle with God's word that rages around us, rages in us. Even if you're truly a Christian today, you now engage in this battle, uh, but you engage in it against the remaining sin in you. You're not, you're not waging war with your flesh against the Lord. No, you've been given a new nature and you're being made increasingly holy. Sin still remains at work in you. And and so that sin resists submitting to God's authoritative word. And seeing this resistance in our passage, in ourselves, we need to note now the power of God's word. When Micaiah comes and stands before the king, he surprises everyone by saying exactly 
what the 400 prophets of Ahab had said. Go up and triumph, Ahab. The Lord will give it into your hands. And you can hear the royal court just starting to, to clap their approval, right? This is great. This is just what we want. But Ahab's not convinced. He notes the, the sarcasm, perhaps, in Micaiah's voice. It seems from Ahab's comments that Micaiah had this habit when he would speak to Ahab to begin his speeches by telling Ahab exactly what Ahab wanted to hear. And so Ahab presses him. How many times, Micaiah, must I make you swear to tell the truth? So Micaiah drops the act and with dead seriousness says, you want the truth? I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep with no shepherd. And the Lord said, they, these have no master. They have no king. Let each return home to his place. In other words, Ahab, I saw that Israel's king was dead, but this actually let the people have some peace. And you can sense the frustration that would have been mounting as, as Micaiah says this, but then he shares another vision. And it shows just how vast the, the scope and how great the might of God's word is. Look at, at verse 19. This is the second time we've heard someone seated on a throne in this chapter. The first time was Ahab and Jehoshaphat. They're holding court with the royal prophets. This time in verse 19, the throne is in heaven and it's God who sits on it. And he's holding court with the heavenly multitude. And so we're meant to see here a contrast between two rulers. We've got King Ahab on the one hand and King Yahweh on the other. And Ahab continues to resist God's word. And the question is, who's going to win the contest? Now, the heavenly assembly is similar to the one that we saw three months ago at the beginning of our study in Job, when we read in, in Job 1 and 2 that the sons of God came to present themselves and Satan also came among them. You see, God is surrounded here by these spiritual beings and he poses the question, who will entice or seduce Ahab to Ramoth Gilead? And so ideas are exchanged, but ultimately an evil spirit comes forward and, pro and proposes that he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. He would go and cause the prophets to speak lies to Ahab. And I want to say, wait, what? And maybe you're wondering, how can this be? Is God guilty of, of deception here? Isn't God completely good and holy? How are we to make sense of this? Well, yes, God is completely good and holy, and he does not lie. We look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I just encourage you, if you've got questions about how this works, read, read verse 14 of James 1, 14 later on, where we're told that, that we're, uh, in fact, enticed by our own sinful desire. But the question is, how can the God of, of these verses, or of, of those verses I just read, be the God that we read in 1 Kings 22? So I suspect that some of you uh, might be troubled or have questions about these verses, and so it's a question that we should ask. And we could easily spend an entire sermon on verses 21 to 23, uh, but I need to limit myself to making two important points. First, notice that while the enticing spirit is sent and granted success by God, God himself doesn't actually keep the truth from Ahab. 
God broadcasts to Ahab through Micaiah the truth. He tells him in advance, these prophets, they are full of lies that will kill you. But Ahab hardens his heart and he chooses to embrace this deception, even though the truth is made plain to him through the prophet. Secondly, though, the best shorthand explanation that I can give you of what's happening here comes from one of the the summaries of biblical teaching that our church uses, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'd encourage you to look up Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. You can Google it uh, afterwards. It's only a few paragraphs, but I want you to listen carefully as I paraphrase the fourth paragraph for you. There we read, The almighty power unsearchable wisdom wisdom and infinite goodness of God show themselves in God's providence. That is, God's keeping and ruling over his creatures. They show themselves in God's providence that his providence extends itself even over the first fall into sin and all other sins of angels and men. And God doesn't just passively allow it to happen, but he wisely and powerfully puts limits on sin Uh, arranges them or organizes them and governs them in various ways to accomplish his holy purpose. Even still, the sinfulness of these actions comes from the creature that does them and not from God who is holy and righteous and he's neither the author nor approver of sin. In other words, God's rule, which he exercises by his word, extends uh, even over uh, uh, individual acts of sin and sinners. But God's not the author of sin. He's not the, uh, he doesn't approve the, the, the sinfulness of the act. In our text, God decrees that the deceitful spirit should entice Ahab through his prophets. But the spirit acts here according to his own wickedness. And the prophets act according to their own wickedness. And Ahab believes their lies according to his own wickedness. But God causes this to happen for his holy and good purpose. We see the same idea of creatures purposing to do evil, but God overriding their wicked purposes to do something good. We see it taught elsewhere in Scripture. We've seen it in Job chapter 1 and 2, right? Satan approaches God with evil purposes in his heart to afflict Job And God uh, permits it to happen. He causes it to happen for his good purposes. See it in Genesis 50, famous passage. Joseph declares that the evil actions of his brothers, though they had meant it for evil, and it was evil, that these were at the same time uh, caused by God and caused uh, uh, for his good purpose, that he might rescue his people from famine. We see it also in Acts 2 in speaking about the crucifixion. In each of these cases, wicked creatures acted out of their own wicked desires to do wicked things, but God, who's good, acts according to his good desires to bring about good things through those same actions. So here, in 1 Kings 22, God ordains that this deceitful spirit, acting according to its own corrupted nature, would deceive Ahab. But God would use the deceitful spirit in the prophets to keep his word, to bring promised judgment on Ahab. But Micaiah's vision is not uh, given to us simply to be a theology lesson and perhaps a confusing theology lesson. There's a very clear purpose that's intended here. 
Remember our contrast. We've got Ahab who's on the throne in Samaria and we've got the Lord who's on the throne in heaven. And the veil between the earthly and the spiritual realm has been pulled back momentarily so that we can see a picture of God who exercises uh, his word in power even over the forces of evil. By his word, God makes even the unwitting and unwilling forces of evil accomplish his purposes, his purposes of judgment and of grace. So let me ask you, knowing what we know now, God uh, has, has spoken by his word, Ahab's resisted it, but knowing what we know now, in a showdown between God and his word and Ahab, who is going to win? So long as Ahab resists, Refusing to humble himself in repentance, he doesn't stand a chance. This vision is meant to warn the one who would refuse to submit in faith and repentance to God's word that this is a battle you cannot possibly win. Well, having peeked into heaven and having seen the commanding power of God's word and knowing that God had already spoken a word of judgment against Ahab, and knowing that Ahab still refused to humble himself under God's word, we can anticipate what's going to happen next. Though he had been warned, Ahab takes the counsel of the 400 prophets, he heads into battle, and while Ahab didn't believe Micaiah enough to to change his plans at all, he shows he's a little bit nervous. And Jehoshaphat, showing that uh, maybe his his prudence, his wisdom doesn't match his, his piety, he agrees, yeah, I'll wear my royal gear, let's go to battle, man. And Ahab disguises himself. And since the Syrians are are targeting Ahab, it almost cost Jehoshaphat his life until the Syrians realize this is not Ahab. Looks like Ahab had outsmarted his enemies, outsmarted the Syrians, but he can't outsmart or outrun God. And verse 34 is just a remarkable piece of storytelling on the part of the author. But a certain man, who knows who he is, drew his bow at random. In other words, he's just a guy fighting. He strings his bow, he sends an arrow flying through the air, and it just so happens that this arrow buries itself into the one vulnerable spot in King Ahab's armor. And it proves the fatal shot. And Ahab dies that evening from his wound, and his men, keeping with Micaiah's vision, leave the battle for the safety of home, for peace. Although this arrow seems random, we know from God's prophetic word that it actually hit its intended mark. God had spoken a word of judgment against Ahab. And then to carry out that judgment, he had commanded the deceitful spirit that it should work in the, in the, the prophets to drive Ahab to this place of reckoning. And now with a divine precision, God brings his word to fulfillment with a seemingly random arrow. Ahab wouldn't submit himself to God's word, and he couldn't run from God's word, so it means that Ahab would be destroyed by God's word. Our passage concludes in verses 37 to 40 by highlighting the exact manner in which God's word worked. Just as God had spoken through his prophet Elijah, Ahab's shame was complete as the dogs licked at his blood and the prostitutes bathed in the pool in which his blood was washed off into. So let's recap where we've been before we make some final applications. First, our chapter and Ahab's life more generally is a picture of man's rejection 
or rebellion against or resistance to God's word. Secondly, that, uh, the word that men and women resist being subject to is God's powerful and sovereign word, which rules over all things, even the forces of evil themselves. And third, since God's, uh, since God's word commands all things, the fulfillment of God's word of judgment upon Ahab was certain. So what does this mean for us? Well, three points. First, rejection of the word will kill you. It will destroy you. Ahab was a powerful man. He controlled a significant army. He had unilateral power in his kingdom. He had wealth. He had every advantage that anyone in his day uh, might uh, hope to have. And with all of this, his life was still a continual opposition to God's word. How many times did God, by his prophet, warn Ahab to turn from his sin and turn to God in mercy? And yet at every point, Ahab had resisted. He didn't want to be told what to do. He didn't want to be told how to live his life. He didn't want to be a man under someone else's authority. And yet if if the odds makers in Israel were to give the odds of who stood the best chance of resisting coming under God's word, surely they would have had to give the best odds to Ahab, wouldn't they? I mean, he was the most powerful person in the kingdom, perhaps next to Jezebel, but he was the most powerful person in the kingdom. And yet what happens to him? To use an old sports cliche, Ahab ran into a buzzsaw. Dale Ralph Davis summarizes the message of our chapter this way. He says, the word of God destroys the man who defies it. And that's exactly right. Friend, I wonder if tonight you have been fighting Ahab's fight. Ahab wanted to be free of any restraining obligation to the Lord. He valued his personal freedom, his autonomy. I'm sure he might have agreed with the word when it was agreeable to him, but that's not submission to the word. He was simply agreeing with the word on his terms. He's not coming under it. Is that how you live your life? If you're not a Christian, and by that I mean if you're not someone who is, uh, trusts only in Jesus' work for you and for your salvation, and you're not seeking to submit more and more to his word, then this is a passage, passage that should frighten you to death. If you said that you're going to live life on your terms, engage God on your terms, if at all, you're heading for the same buzzsaw that Ahab ran into. And to be clear, you can live a really good, you can live a really moral West Michigan life, you can live a life that gives every indication of success and still be resistant to coming under God's word which demands entire submission. Or maybe you'd consider yourself a Christian, but there are parts of your life that you are willfully, persistently refusing to submit to God and you're not grieved by that. Or like Ahab, though you're confronted by the truth of God's word, you're only going to comply, uh, you're only going to comply with what you read in your Bibles or preach from the pulpit when that's agreeable to you. So you'll come to church, you'll volunteer, you'll maintain a certain appearance, but in certain other places of your life, what you say with your mouth, what you watch with your eyes, what you do with your body, what you hear with your ears, what you do with your time, you're still going to do things your way. And I would beg of you, look at Ahab. In the 18th century, in England, criminals uh, such as pirates were sometimes executed by public hanging. 
And in a rather gruesome practice, which I'm glad is gone, pirates such as Captain William Kidd were hung until dead and then their bodies were left uh, to hang and rot over the River Thames. And they'd be hanged there in an, in an iron gibbet. And the purpose was to warn others that such lawlessness would result in similar ruin. It was an example, a frightening example. And I want you to think of Ahab's body propped up in its chariot. I want you to think of Ahab's body that way. His death laid out here is meant very publicly to warn you. With all his power, Ahab defied God's word and it destroyed him and it will destroy you too. But it doesn't have to. There's a way of escape. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul, addressing concerns about the end of the world, speaks of the mystery of lawlessness that is at work as men resist God and his word, God and his revelation. And Paul there speaks of how there are those who are, are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Sounds familiar. And in their natural state, they reject God's word and they embrace the lies of the evil one, which are at the same time an act of God's judgment. But not all, Paul says, will come under this delusion or suffer this condemnation. The way of escape is found in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How then do word defiers, word resistors escape from plunging headlong into the buzz, buzzsaw of God's word? Well, God graciously chooses those whom he would show mercy to. And, and, he, and when he shows his mercy, he does this through the Spirit, setting you apart as holy so that you would believe in the truth. And this truth is that which you hear through the gospel. And you hear it so that you may obtain the riches of his glory and not the fury of his judgment. God, by his grace, has made a way for word defiers to be saved. Believe in the truth which is made known to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God, who spoke through the prophets, has spoken to us now by his Son. He, Jesus, is the word of God. The word became flesh. In Jesus, the character of God was on display as the fullness of deity dwelt in him. In Jesus, the commands of God were made known as Jesus taught and lived in full submission to his Father's will. In Jesus, the word is now offered to you to embrace by faith, to humbly submit yourself to, so that you would not come under condemnation or be destroyed. And while it's certainly true that even in Christians, our sinful nature resists submitting to God's word. And this passage challenges us to more thoroughly submit to his word. This is a story that's also meant to give us encouragement. For Micaiah, for the Jews who were reading the account of kings in exile, God fulfilling his word in the judgment of Ahab was yet another confirmation that the Lord's word is strong and it's true. When God speaks by that same word, he is able to act and accomplish. 
This story fortifies for God's people, it fortifies God's people because it reminds us that his mercies are as certain as his judgments. What God says he can and will certainly do. It's proof of what God says in Isaiah 55, 11. My word will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. If God could not or, or would not keep his word when it came to his promised judgments, then you couldn't be sure that he would keep his word when it came to his promised blessings. But he does keep it. And that meant, for the first readers of this text, that God's promises to bring his people back from exile and into the land, that these would be kept. It meant that his promise to send a salvation-bearing king would be kept. And it means that God's promises to you, Christian, will be kept. That he will never leave you or forsake you. That he will graciously give you all that you truly need. That out of the riches of his, his grace, he will give you an eternal inheritance. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That you will be sanctified completely. That you will be raised in power at his coming. And that on that day you will be found without spot or blemish. And that you will enter into his promised rest. And though the certainty of God's judgments are dreadful, the fact that his word infallibly comes to pass means that our hope is sure. And our confidence is justified and that he is worth trusting in. So beloved, see and tremble at God's word. Know that all who proudly resist it and defy it will come to everlasting ruin and ask that God would give you grace to submit to him and more and more come beneath his word and then know and rest in this. That since his power his word is powerful and true. You have reason to hope that God will always keep his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is truth. We can depend on it. And Lord, this should make us, if we are outside of Christ, to tremble at your words of warning and the judgments that are promised in it should make us want to flee the wrath which is to come and to find a Savior, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those who are listening who have, have resisted proudly submitting to your word that you would give them grace to humble themselves in faith and repentance and come beneath that word for the first time that they might find life and healing in your precepts. And Lord, I pray with thanksgiving on behalf of your people that your word is true and reliable and dependable, that we uh, can know that because you keep your word of judgment, you will also keep your words of mercy and the promises that are extended to us in Christ in the gospel. Might these be our bedrock. Might these be our confidence as we know the certainty and power of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.